one of the things that's really important is to realize that it's not just the temperature that's spiked on our planet in the last 30 years. It's the level of inequality. And that is a huge detriment to taking action. We need economies that work for everyone. Hello, and welcome to episode 12, and the last in the current series, of What Comes After, What Comes Next, with me, James Shaw, Minister for Climate Change and co-leader of the Green Party. Over the last 11 episodes, we have explored the big ideas about how we tackle the climate crisis and renew our economies in a post-pandemic world, and today is no different. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Bill McKibben, a world-leading author, environmentalist, and activist. I actually spoke to Bill back in April during the Level 4 lockdown, but now seems like a perfect time to release the conversation that we had about the post-pandemic recovery and the climate crisis a theme that will only continue to develop in the coming months and years. Bill's work and his decades of activism will be known to many of you. In 1988, he wrote The End of Nature, the first book for a common audience about global warming. He also co-founded 350.org, an international climate campaign that works in 188 countries around the world, including here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. In 2014, he was awarded the Right Livelihood Prize, which is sometimes called the Alternative Nobel. He's also the Schumann Distinguished Scholar in Environmental Studies at Middlebury College and a Fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. In 2013, he won the Gandhi Prize and the Thomas Merton Prize and holds honorary degrees from 18 colleges and universities. Thank you so much for listening over the past 11 episodes, we certainly hope to be in a position to bring you a second series very soon. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback. My email is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. Now, here's my conversation with Bill McKibben. Bill, you have said about the coronavirus that once you know uh, how to slow the spread of something, doing it is actually fairly intuitive. Uh, and you also said that that logic holds true for climate change. So I'm curious, what do you think is the most intuitive thing that we could be doing uh, as a government, as a country? Well, I think that the, the, I think what's important about the coronavirus, I mean, this is a horrible pandemic with no silver linings. You guys down there seem to have figured out better than almost any place on earth how to deal with it. Uh, and of course, being the uh, island is an advantage, but, uh, but many congratulations. As with many pieces of public policy in recent years, New Zealand is clearly uh, ahead of the world. I think the things that are really important to take away for the planet and for all of us from this crisis are probably twofold. One, physical reality is real. That sounds like an obvious thing to say, but it hasn't been an obvious thing for decades around the world. 
uh, people have persisted one government after another in believing that they could somehow force the carbon dioxide molecule to compromise, that they could negotiate with it, uh, that they, you know, it would somehow respect their political needs or their economic cycle or whatever. And that's nonsense. It's as much nonsense as believing that you could compromise or spin the COVID microbe. God knows our president has tried, uh, you know, day after day up there at the lectern announcing that it's a hoax or that it's going to go away or that a miracle will happen or whatever. And I'm afraid you can see the result every night on the evening news. Biology is real. Chemistry is real. Physics is real. Uh, that's what we have to understand. I think the, the other subtler lesson that really is sinking in now is that delay is the enemy. Delay is, in this case, literally fatal. Uh, you know, the U.S. and South Korea had their first case of COVID on the same day in January. South Koreans went to work. They disrupted things to one degree or another. They said no big gatherings and we're going to test everybody all the time. It was inconvenient. It cost some money, whatever. But they're now pretty much looking at this thing, beginning to look at it through the rearview mirror, as opposed to the U.S., where it's crashing through the front windshield because we, you know, delayed. We took six weeks and did nothing. And and the the phrase, the artful phrase that we're all used to now, flattening the curve, <clears throat> that's a perfect analogy for the climate crisis, except that this one's playing out over weeks instead of decades. Had we, when first warned about uh, uh, the climate crisis 30 years ago by scientists, had we reacted as a world like South Korea, we would have done some disruptive, but only moderately so things. We would have put a price on carbon 30 years ago, that kind of stuff. And that would have, I mean, it wouldn't have solved climate change by now, but we would have made the big, long shifts that were required. Instead, we did just the opposite. We accelerated our use of fossil fuel. As you know, James, we've burned more, put more carbon in the atmosphere since 1990 than in all of human history before. And... So flattening the carbon curve is exactly what we needed to do and didn't, and it's still what we need to do. We still need to move with enormous speed at this point, not to prevent climate change. That's no longer on the list of options, but to keep it from getting any worse than it has to get. Our best intelligence from the IPCC is that we have until about 2030 to exert real leverage on the outcome here. That's the period of time when we might still make changes as a planet that would allow us to have some hope of meeting the Paris climate targets. So that's the equivalent of February in the United States. You know, We're either going to use that time to prepare and make change, or we're going to sit back in 2030 and uh, deal with the um, impossible consequences. So, I, I mean, I, I'm kind of fascinated by the relationship between these two crises, one of which is a, a you know, a fast burn crisis and the other of which is a slow burn crisis. And, Only um, a slow burn in, 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 in geological time, the climate yeah. is pretty fast burn too. <laughs> 
Well, it, it's true, right? In the span of a, of a human lifetime, ten years or even thirty years is is within within one generation. Yeah. But I'm I'm curious because you know humans are apparently I'm no scientist but uh, apparently you know hardwired genetically to deal with a clear and present danger, uh, which is you know due to uh, our origins um, in in the trees, and we're particularly poorly wired genetically to deal with crises of the. Style of the parable of the boiling frog, you know the, those ones that we can intellectually grasp, uh, you know, and and have intellectually grasped climate change, but but somehow we're we're not responding with anything like the sense of urgency or scale uh, that we are the COVID crisis, well, the and yet the COVID is, crisis will be with us for I don't know two years, yeah. um, but the climate crisis is several decades. So uh, how, how do you I respond guess, to that? I guess in that case, I mean, it's not really good news, but the good news is that it's no longer an intellectual question, climate change. I mean, you guys didn't have to look very far. Is it the, is it the Tasman Sea that separates you from Australia? Uh, yes. All you had to do was glance across the Tasman Sea in January and watch a continent burning to the ground. We think 20% of Australia's forests burned in the course of five weeks. We think a couple of billion animals died. We think five or six species went extinct. I was reading the accounts that wasn't the smoke drifting across to New Zealand. Um, it was. We, we had uh, sort of two or three days where in parts of New Zealand, the sky turned orange and uh, the sun sort of disappeared, and um, that I think for a lot of New Zealanders was, you know, experientially uh, a, a big wake-up call because, of course, Australia is two thousand kilometres away. So the idea that a forest fire in Australia would darken our own skies um, was startling to a lot of people. The pictures from Australia. I mean, I have a lot of friends and colleagues in Australia, and I was talking to them a lot, and just to hear the fear in their voices was palpable. The pictures were like something out of Hieronymus Bosch, you know? Um, I mean, they sort of lurid nighttime shots of thousands of people wading into the ocean because it was the only way to avoid being burned to death, you know? Um, that's not what one thinks about when one thinks of a modern, prosperous economy in the 21st century, any more than one thinks about the scenes we're seeing now from New York or Paris or whatever of nobody in the streets, you know. Um, so uh, I think that at this point, I'm afraid climate change has progressed to the spot where it's increasingly not an intellectual exercise anymore to figure it out. Uh, we can see pretty plainly what's going on. The biggest difference between what we're undergoing with coronavirus and the climate crisis, I think, is simply that, thank God, there's not a trillion dollar industry on our planet in whose interest it is for all of us to die of coronavirus. If it were, we might never get out of it because the trillion dollar industry that wants to keep burning coal and gas and oil has been enough to keep us from addressing that crisis with the seriousness it deserves. Well, now, and that is a lovely segue, uh, thank you, Bill, into thinking about the uh, the nature of the economy and, you know, if we'd planned this podcast a month ago, we would have been 
talking about it absent uh, COVID, maybe two months ago, um, but now it's, it is within that context. You, you had a, a New Yorker newsletter that you uh, penned recently and you said, um, or you quoted someone who said that investments are a crucial instrument of our values, uh, which was, I think, a lovely uh, way of summarizing that. And in order to meet our, both in New Zealand, our domestic, but also our international uh, obligations, we, like every other country, have to make significant reductions, as you say, over the course of the next 10 years. What do you mean uh, when you say that investment with purpose, um, what, how, does that, how does that look within the context of 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 the changed context with uh, the COVID nineteen um, economic stimulus that's coming towards I, us, I think it I think it makes it all the clearer sort of where we are and what we need to do. I mean, we're heading at least in this country, and I think probably around the world into an economic slide the likes of which we probably haven't seen since the depression in the thirties. So. <laughs> You know, what do you do to get out of a depression? Franklin Roosevelt figured it out, and what you did was the New Deal. Uh, I was very taken today to see that the newly elected uh, liberal government of South Korea uh, announced that their economic recovery plan was going to be what they were calling a Green New Deal. Uh, that's what they were they were determined to go to. I mean, they're the seventh biggest emitting country in the world right now. And they said today they will be at net zero by 2050, um, which for, you know, Asia has not been a leader in these things. That's a pretty remarkable. Uh, 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 and if they back it up with the kind of investment that I, they seem to be, that'll be a remarkable thing to do. There's no huge mystery about this. I mean, we're going to have to we're going to have to stimulate our economies. One way we could do it is just desperately try to get back to normal, which would mean uh, setting up all the pins at the end of the bowling alley, just where they were before and waiting for them to get knocked down again, because it's pretty clear that's what climate change means. The other option is to say, look, since we've got to do something here, this is a chance to not set up those pins again for once to get out ahead of uh, of this crisis. So uh, we'll see. It's going to take enlightened leadership. It's definitely not going to come from the United States this time. You know, I mean, it's the contrast between your prime minister and our president is about as painful a political contrast as it's possible to imagine. And you all need to have a little bit of sympathy for those of us who are making it through the fourth year of the Trump administration. We are going to do everything we can to make sure there's not a fifth year of the Trump administration. Uh, but even in that case, I don't think you're going to get incredible leadership from a politically divided country that is the United States now. So uh, I'm afraid we gave you the best we could give you in the 1930s, and it might be smart to draw on those lessons in other places. Well, I'm, I'm interested, of course, because uh, at, you know that may be true of the, the federal administration, um, but at the same time, the notion of the Green New Deal has been popularized recently by um, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and the squad uh, and, and others. Um, and 
I'm I'm also curious because a lot of things in the US happen at the state level rather than at the federal level. We don't have states, of course, in New Zealand, but if you look at California and New York State and California is really the place to watch. It's the fifth largest economy in the world. Uh, it's it's Germany, actually a little bigger now, and and it's the you know center of a lot of interesting technological innovation. Uh, you know, and it's it's California and China that have driven down the cost of solar panels, that have figured out a lot of the new engineering for electric cars that are doing these things. Uh, uh, California is going to be doing really interesting stuff in the next few years. It's probably no accident that California is also the part of the states that responded best to the COVID crisis and is going to come out of it in better shape than the rest of the country. One of the things that happened in America that you guys don't have to worry about, but that is important to just know about to make sure that you don't slip into it somehow, is that, you know, America lost track of the idea of social solidarity for the most part. We entered into this phase where, um, well, where we began to think that markets solved all problems and that the most important thing to do is just for each person to concentrate on becoming rich, you know. Uh, Ronald Reagan sort of inaugurated that era in our politics by saying famously, the nine scariest words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Ha, ha, ha. It turns out the scariest words in the English language are, we've run out of ventilators, or the hillside behind your house is now on fire, you know? And there's no market solution to either of those problems. There's only solutions that come from building strong societies with a good deal of trust and cohesion. And and I don't know, frankly, whether uh, as a whole America's politics are, are repairable at this point. It's going to be a hard task. But you're right. There are places that are doing better and are capable of doing better. California is one of them. I'm extremely lucky to live in Vermont, uh, which is uh, uh, another place with, I mean, uh, you know, I, I feel right at home when I get to Dunedin or someplace because it feels like Burlington, Vermont. You know, these are places that, that kind of work. And it's no accident that Bernie Sanders came out of, you know, the Vermont political milieu. Um Let's hope that these are the, the, you know, that we hew to our better angels in the course of this crisis, because that's a really important part of the future, whether or not we can come together in those ways. And just extending this thing about the Green New Deal, of course, FDR's Green New Deal did only happen, what, about 40 or 50 years after the American Civil War. Um, so I'm, I'm, and I hope it doesn't take that long for the current uh, level of partisanship to subside within within the U.S. Um, but you, you you know you're talking about the values I guess that underpin that package. You know, ensuring that people have what they need to provide for their families, and also at the same time, you know, rebuilding the fabric of society through kind of economic activity, and. I'm, I've been quite attracted to the notion of the Green New Deal, and it's not new. It's been, in fact, I think it, it may have been initially coined as a response to the GFC ten years ago, um, and and now it's sort of been dusted off and and beefed up to deal with the with the current crisis. 
And so if you think about the parallels, as you were saying before, uh, you know, we need to, yes, it's about repairing the economy, but it's also about ensuring that the, the social fabric uh, is maintained or even built on whilst building a better and a cleaner economy. What do you think the things are that we should be focusing on? And I know there are huge differences between the New Zealand economy and the American economy, but you've been to New Zealand a few times. You're reasonably familiar with what we have here. And there are also similarities. Well, uh, you know, one of the things that's really important, and I'll talk more globally for a minute, one of the things that's really important is to realize that it's not just the temperature that's spiked on our planet in the last 30 years, it's the level of inequality. And that is a huge detriment to taking action. We need economies that work for everyone. Uh, we need people to be, you know, able to be engaged citizens making uh, uh, a decent living so that they can take part in the kind of change and debate that we need to do. I'm afraid you're going to find out more and more about this inequality because it appears to me that all of America's most odious billionaires have decided that New Zealand is their bunker for surviving whatever's coming. The ones that haven't built rocket ships to take them to Mars are busily trying to figure out, you know, where on the South Island they might like to relocate. So you may get a little sense of this going forward. Um, but that's, you know, so that's job one. Uh, New Zealand's done a better job than most places of trying to flatten that curve a little bit. But clearly that's crucial to, to keep moving forward. The things that we have to do technologically are no great mystery. I mean, you know, we know now how to drive down emissions in a lot of ways. Uh, uh, um, in the kind of power sector, we know how to produce electric cars. We know how to do all those kind of things. The harder places are the ones that require sort of cultural change. Um, you know, uh, uh, farming is one of those professions where it's difficult to get people to, be, in part because change is hard for just, you know, this is how it's always been done. So figuring out how to crack that nut and get people to move is hard. And of course, the other problem for New Zealand, I think, is going to be figuring out um, how you, how, if there's kind of a future for you know, global jet tourism in a carbon constrained age. And I, I don't really know the answer to that, but it's an important part of uh, the New Zealand economy. And, and it's unclear to me what sort of what, I mean, that's the, in certain ways, that's the, the hardest thing to provide the technological substitute for quickly. That's a, a, a very pertinent point because of course, due to, the COVID-19 crisis, we have now effectively shut down uh, our entire uh, tourism industry. And you're right, um, it was the single largest uh, foreign exchange earner for us. It was about 30% of our export dollars uh, came from tourism. And it is going to be a while before we do reopen to international travel for humans. Obviously, freight is still operational, uh, but tourism, uh, especially mass tourism, uh, appears to uh, you know, be unlikely to return for some, for some time. And I wonder if there are you know, things that you see that we could learn from the way things have 
kind of crash down around our ears in relation to COVID. Uh, because people are looking for hope that, you know, they do want things to go back to the way they were before. And yet, as you've said, you know, we also know that in a carbon constrained world, it's going to be a while before you have large aircraft that are battery powered. You might get tiny ones that are battery powered, but it's, it's, it's going to be a long time before you can see large aircraft. How do we, how do we straddle that without causing huge hardship the way that has happened through COVID? Well, I mean, clearly we've got to have, we can't have, you know, we, I mean, the, the COVID thing is uh, we can't have economies over the long run that if everybody is stays, has to stay in their house all the time. So that, you know, we've got to figure out a way around that. But I do think that probably the message that we're getting here is in the largest terms that that the most important values for economies in the 21st century are going to be different than the 20th century. We built our economic model around the idea that growth was the most desirable thing. And, and that led to an enormous number of decisions always in favor of whatever it was that grew economies faster. Understandable, and we all are the beneficiaries of the standard of living that that produced and so on. But I think that the COVID crisis and the emerging climate crisis is a reminder that in the 21st century, the most premium, the highest premium in our economies are going to be put on stability and hardiness and resilience. And I think the kind of image that I keep in my mind is, um, since I live in rural part of the world, uh, the difference between a racehorse and a draft horse, you know, um, if you got a flat, smooth course um, um, with no obstacles and it's a sunny day, then a thoroughbred is a wonderful thing to see. It can go lickety split, and it's a it, you know couldn't be more beautiful to watch. But if there's any problem at all, if there's rocks along the way, if it's pouring rain and it's in the mud, it's whatever. Then what you really want is a big, strong draft horse pulling your plow, you know. Um, and and I, I mean that's a homely image, but I think it it really does help us start to understand how it is we're going to be thinking about economies going forward. The values that the things that people want now, all of a sudden, I think, have a lot more to do with uh, security and stability than they used to. You know, the economy is a chaotic thing. It's not something that's easily designed or planned. And, you know, humans have had a few goes at yeah. planned economies and that didn't work out so well. And, you know, we've had kind of total laissez-faire uh, market economies and in some ways they haven't worked out so well. It doesn't follow a set path. So can we deliberately plan a transition to a low carbon economy? I mean, do you think that yeah, that's... I think you can only plan some of the, the the sort of guiding principles. So, for instance, I mean, that's the reason that it would have made a lot of sense a long time ago to put a serious price on carbon, um, because it would have informed economies what basic direction they needed to go in without prescribing exactly how they needed to go there. Um, and and we still should be doing that, but we're at the point at this point where that alone isn't going to be enough. We're also going to need to have serious uh, government intervention 
in a few obvious places. I mean, since it's entirely clear that we have to move to renewable energy around the world, it's very clear that we're going to need governments to help subsidize and regulate that process. And, and since it's very clear that we need to keep carbon in the ground, the basic physics of climate change is it's just a math problem. You know, uh, there's a limit to how much of this stuff you can dig up and burn and we're past the limit. So governments are going to have to do the work individually and cooperatively of keeping carbon in the ground. Uh, these, you know, were the basic, uh, if somewhat vaporish outlines of the Paris Climate Accords, at least especially the first one, and 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 that's what you know we should be working on as a world going forward. We obviously centrally planning every part of our economy is not in the cards. You know, one of the useful results of the 20th century is we know the things that don't work too. You know, we learn some bitter and useful lessons. So we don't need to repeat those. But we're the idea that we're going to get out of this simply by letting the invisible hand of the economy do its thing is. I mean, look. I mean invisible hand, all we need to do, what we need to do now is wash hands, you know, that's our basic strategy. Uh, uh, so, so it's a time for, um, it's a time for intense practicality, it seems to me, uh, where ideology begins to take a little bit of a backseat to uh, practicality of organizing things. And that'll mean different things in different places. I have no doubt that there are countries that are going to figure out that, say, their military is, you know, good, is a, something that could be repurposed to do some, much of the work that needs to be done uh, in terms of transitions. There'll be other countries where that doesn't work. Um, and you'll have other institutions within society that come forward to draw on things like that. I think it's going to be an interesting time if people set their minds to it. And and the COVID business is powerfully reminding us that fantasy solutions are not an option here. Like one of the options is not just pretending that it's all going to get better. That's not going to work. So let's move past that. You're sort of hinting at what it takes to keep the public on board and uh, you just said that you think now is a time for intense practicality that we need to move beyond ideology or there's the possibility of moving beyond ideology and yet I know every time I get up and say hey the COVID recovery has to be a you know, low carbon uh, recovery, I get accused of being ideological uh, because I'm the minister for climate change and I'm a Green Party uh, politician. So I would say that, uh, of course. And, you know, like you said, we're in a position now where we have to make a significant level of state investment in, in the recovery. We also know that a lot of people are going to lose their jobs. I mean, the, the job numbers that we're seeing come out of the US are truly horrific. How how would you pitch solutions and and the kinds of investments that we're about to need to make uh, in it, in in the climate, um, but in a way that's going to keep the public on board? Because their concerns are going to be so immediate and so much you know, bread and butter issues. Can I keep the house? Can I make my mortgage payments? Can I keep my rent up? Uh, you know, what's happening to my income? 
it's a pretty t- tough operating environment. It is. It is. It is one of these places, though, where it's possible to, you know, it, where you suddenly have an incentive to do a lot of things that should have been done anyway. So, for instance, where I live, clearly we're going to have a lot of people we need to put to work. What's a good job for putting people to work? Well, one of the things that clearly needs to happen here, and I imagine in parts of New Zealand too, is retrofitting houses so that they're energy efficient and don't leak heat or cooling all the time. And the good news about that is it comes with a predictable uh, stream of savings, right? Um, you know you can predict how much money you're going to save by making your house more energy efficient, which means that governments are capable, should be capable of financing that kind of work uh, and allowing it to, to proceed quickly and employ people and, and in the process, lower people's monthly bills. Um, you know, done right, you can usually manage to even with paying off a loan, uh, lower the monthly utility bill. So it's a win, win on three counts, you know? So it's the time for thinking smart about stuff like that. Uh, you know, part of what we've been talking about with economies is they're going to become more local in a sense, at least for a while. So let's think about how to use that opportunity. You have said that a uh, green economic stimulus is utterly necessary, um, but also people are going to need to keep looking for pressure points to bring about change. So I know that you know New Zealand and you know New Zealanders. What would be to close your message to the people of New Zealand? Well, first of all, many, many thanks for the stuff you've already done. There have been some really world-leading things that have come out of New Zealand in the last couple of years for which we're incredibly grateful. The commitment to zero carbon future, and for me particularly, the uh, beginnings of um, real kind of keep it in the ground and keep it in the ocean policies that uh, get in the way of the exploitation of fossil fuel reserves are of enormous gift to the rest of the world. Um, You know, uh, New Zealand will always be in the paradoxical place of, you know, being too small to solve uh, any of the world's global problems on its own, um, but always in the place of being able to provide enormous leadership for about you know, on how those things should be done. You know, people around the world now are paying attention to New Zealand. Your prime minister is a master of the gesture. And gesture is an important part of political communication, you know. It's the way that we send signals and messages. So figuring out how to take that gift that was displayed during the COVID crisis, uh, we loved the pictures of her, you know, uh, talking about the Easter Bunny with children in, in New Zealand, or the tragic in the tragic case of the mosque shootings uh the powerful response that quickly you know changed gun laws and things to be able to keep taking that kind of power of gesture and a power of social solidarity that new zealand provides and use it to help show the rest of us how to take action around climate change would be a great gift and in return we'll do our best to keep our most noxious billionaires close to home um, and not inflict them on you any more than we have to. Bill McKibben, 
thank you so much for your generosity of time uh, and your generosity of spirit. It's been a real pleasure. A real pleasure for me. Take good care, you guys. Thank you very much for listening, and thank you to Bill McKibben for joining me. Feel free to get in touch anytime. My email again is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. Thank you again for listening to the show. I hope to see you for Series 2 very soon. This podcast is authorised by me, James Shaw, List MP, Parliament Buildings, Wellington.